thinking about students and, and kind of where we're, where we're going today in, in the text and when God's, God's word is, thinking about God's love and keeping with the theme of students, I, I think back to my time as a teenager, as a student, and you could probably think back uh, when you were a student, think about those people that were so um, crucial in your life, that loved you, that poured into you, that showed you God's love in their lives. Maybe that was a teacher, maybe it was a coach, maybe it was a parent, maybe it was a, a friend, or maybe you didn't receive that until, until you found your spouse or it may be, but God uses relationships in our lives. That's why I love pointing to our students, because God uses relationships to, to transform us, to change us. And by, by someone loving us, by someone showing God's love to us, it transforms us. It really impacts us deeply. And so we see God has a way of using people in his work, in his redeeming work throughout creation. God is using us, his people. And so we'll see that today as we go through the text, that God in his gracious and impartial love is calling us along with his mission as well. So in Genesis 29, that's where we'll be in the text. So this is, we're kind of touching in on the gospel project to Jacob and uh, his work and with there for Laban and finding his, his two spouses, Leah and Rachel. But I want to draw your attention to what happened right before this text. Kind of where we drop in is right before this, if you remember last week, Jacob tricked his brother Esau into stealing the birthright over some red soup. And he stole the birthright and even lied to his father and received the birthright. So now he's fleeing for his life from his brother and his parents send him to Haran to find a wife, which is where his mom, Rebecca, is from. And so on his way, on his journey, Jacob stops off at the hotel, Motel 6 right there. And it's actually a rock that he's literally sleeping on there in this place. doesn't sound very comfortable to me. And so Jacob has a dream. We covered this last year, last week in community groups. Jacob has a dream and he sees a ladder coming down from heaven. He sees God speaking to him above the ladder and giving him the blessing that he gave to his grandfather Abraham and his father Isaac. That same promise, that same blessing to make his name great, make his descendants great, to bless him, give him a land and to be with him wherever he went. God gave that same promise to Jacob there. And it tells us that Jacob took that stone that he was using as his very comfortable pillow and he made that into a pillar like a monument to God. So every time that he would see that stone, he would think back to God's promises in his life and what God promised him there. And scripture also tells us that place was called Luz. And Jacob, I guess he just, you could do this in this time, he just changed this place's name. He changed it to Bethel or Bethel, which means house of God. I see that's kind of funny that Jacob just goes into a place, rolls up and just changes the name. Like, can you do that? So, like, it's like me going to Madison, like, nah, I'm not going to call this Madison anymore, right? It's going to be called Beth Labana, which means house of brick for you in Hebrew. Uh, but worked hard on that in my Hebrew studies this week. It's the only time I've ever used Hebrew in a sermon, and uh, I think I've waited to a good time. So it's, he just changes the name to Bethel, which is the house of God. It's where he experiences God's promise to him, and he set up the stone. So that's kind of where we find ourselves here in Genesis 29. Jacob is now entering close to, to Haran to find his mother's kindred and find a spouse. So read with me starting in verse 1. Then Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. As he looked, he saw a well in the field, and behold, three flocks of sheep lying beside it. For out of that well the flocks were watered. watered. The stone on the well's mouth was large, and when all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep and put the stone back in its place over the mouth of the well. Jacob said to them, My brothers, where do you come from? They said, We are from Haran. He said to them, Do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? They said, We know him. He said to them, Is it well with him? They said, It is well. And see, Rachel, his daughter, is coming with the sheep. Pause. So he's like, Do you all know my uncle, Laban? They're like, Yeah, actually... 
there's his daughter right there. So it's like a pause in the scene. It's like everybody freezes. Jacob looks up and just imagine I have like the morning sunrise, a silhouette of Rachel just riding in, right? And it's like love at first sight. So much so, look what he says next. He said to the shepherds, behold, it's, it is still high day. Is it not time for the livestock to be gathered together? Water the sheep and go pasture them. He's like, hey, guys, I need you all to get out of here. All right, I need some alone time. All right, get out. Water your sheep. Go do what you got to do. I need to talk to Rachel. But that's not how it works. So they said, verse 8, we cannot until all the flocks are gathered together and the stone is rolled from the mouth of the well. Then we water the sheep. While he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. Now as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman and that he was Rebekah's son. And she ran and told her father. As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, her sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. Jacob told Laban all these things, and Laban said to him, Surely you are my bone and my flesh, and he stayed with him a month. So we see Jacob come to the well, meet these shepherds, and they actually know that he's close to Haran. They know his family that he's looking for, and he, he meets Rachel, and it's just love at first sight. So one note here is that obviously in the ancient world, love happened at the well. Right? If you remember when uh, Abraham sent his servant to, to Haran to find Isaac, a spouse, it was at the well that the servant saw Rebecca coming in. And so, like, if I was some of you college students, I would be going to cups way more, right? Because, like, love happens at the watering hole. That's where it happens in the Bible. It's going to happen today. So go to cups, find your spouse. Don't hold me to that. But we see that happen here. So he sees Rachel coming in, right? And it's, and it's just that love at first sight. But one thing I want to see here in the text, too, is that the reasons the shepherds could not water the flock is because there was a large stone on top of the well. And the stone was there to protect the well from intruders, to protect just you know, stuff getting in it or animals coming. And it was very heavy. Most scholars believe that the reason why the shepherds here were waiting on the rest of the shepherds to come in is because the stone was so heavy that they couldn't remove it themselves. They, had, they needed a, a lot of people to move it. And yet here in the text, we see Jacob come in, see the silhouette, and starts rolling up his sleeves and lifts the stone up. It's like, are you looking? See the triceps? Yep. That's like, that's what he does here. He moves the stone by himself when it took all these shepherds to move it. So, like, obviously, he had a thing for Rachel. Like, we see this. And there's so much it gave him, like, Samson strength here when he moved, removed the stone. But also, what we see with that stone is it calls us back to Bethel. It calls us back to what God did, the dream that Jacob had at Bethel, because here we see another stone. This is immediately following Jacob having his dream and making his stone pillow the pillar that would remind him every time he saw it of God's promises to him. God's promise to bless him, to keep him, to be with him wherever he went. And now he comes into a foreign land meeting new people, and the first thing he sees is a large stone. And that would directly took Jacob back to God's promise at Bethel, that God immediately is with Jacob, working in the life of Jacob that we see here by bringing him to Haran, by allowing him to meet Rachel and come into the family, God is working his magnificent plan out in the life. Stone is just, is bringing us back to that, is drawing us back to that right here. And so even though it was heavy, but it takes us back to God's promise to Jacob, that God is loving Jacob so graciously 
way beyond what he deserves by bringing about his promise in the life of Jacob. We see that right here in the text. He's bringing him to Haran to meet Rachel. And we see Jacob is an unlikely recipient of God's grace here. That God is pouring out his love graciously onto Jacob. And if we, what we know about Jacob is that he was the last person that deserves this grace. He's the last person that deserves God to give a plan to him. Right? He was a deceiver. He literally stole from his brother and his dying father. Right? Like, who does that? Right? Like, and he, he's done that. And yet God is still, still bringing about his plan in the life of Jacob. Not because of who Jacob is or what he's done, but because God is a loving and gracious God. He loves graciously to his children, to his people. So despite Jacob's mistakes, God was still bringing about his perfect plan, his plan to, to prosper Jacob, to bring about his covenant with his covenant people, Israel. He's still using that in the life of broken people, in the life of Jacob, and he's working here. We see that through the stone and through him coming to Haran. Now you may be saying, okay, Stevie, but I know what comes next, and that's where, you know, Laban tricks Jacob. And you may be saying, how is, how is God working in that? How is God's plan coming about through this deception? And so what happens next is, he does meet Laban. He comes to the family, and in fact, he agrees to Laban to work for seven years for Rachel, the one that he saw coming, the one he lifted that stone for. He had an agreement to work for seven years. And after that, what happened is he didn't get to marry Rachel. We know the story that actually he was deceived on the night of the wedding and, for, and deceived into marrying Leah. Like, who is Leah, right? Like, she didn't even in the story yet. And all of a sudden, he gets deceived into marrying her. That's the older brother Older, older sister, Ooh, oh, that'd be bad. Uh, older sister, even worse, um, of Rachel, right? So he is tricked and deceived into marrying Leah. <laughs> and uh, what we see here is that God, in his magnificent love and grace, is still working through the deception of his people. That how is God still in the, in the middle of this when, when Laban deceives Jacob and makes him marry someone who didn't want to marry and force him to work seven more years for Rachel. We see two things here in this deception, and one is that only God's promises can be taken to the bank, right? Only God's promises are eternal and long-lasting and cannot be broken because he is truth, right? Only God's promises, that we can't necessarily trust all of man's promises, that immediately here Laban makes a promise to Jacob, and he broke it. He didn't, he didn't get to marry Rachel after seven years like he thought. So we see here that only God's truth can be trusted. Only the words that are in this book, that we can take these words to the bank because they are the revealed word of God for us. And that this is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So we see that through this. Secondly, is that not only is, is, can we only take God's word to the bank, but through Laban's deception and this kind of jacked up story that we see here is that God is in the business of using jacked up people like me and you to bring about his promises, right? Like, who are we to be a part of what God's doing in Jackson? Like, he is perfect, he is good, and for one, he doesn't even need us, but yet he chooses to use us and to love us and to bring about his purpose and his plan in mine and your lives and in Jacob's life. Jacob didn't deserve this, right? Jacob didn't deserve to be used for God's plan and purpose, but God in his gracious love uses him. We see that here, even though he was tricked in by his father-in-law and uncle Laban. You know, and these multiple spouses here, right, like in the, and we don't really understand this, like in the kind of the, obviously here it's, it's not God's, you know, perfect plan in the sense of that he was tricked, 
like in the, the double marriage here. So we don't really fully, you know, in our context, in our culture today, like understand here. So we see nowhere does God say that it's good to have multiple spouses, right? So I don't want us to see this, to see Rachel and Leah like, oh, let me do that to my son-in-law one day, right? Um, getting her out of the house. Uh, no, we don't see that. So, but God pours his love graciously onto his people despite their mistakes, despite their flaws. And we see that in this text. And not only does God love as we go on, we see God loves impartially. So if you will, pick up uh, with me in verse 31 of chapter 29. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben, which she said, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction. For now my husband will love me. She conceived again and bore a son, and said, because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. Again, she conceived and bore a son and said, Now this time my husband will be attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore, his name was called Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son and, and said, This time I will praise the Lord. Therefore, she called his, his name Judah. Then she ceased bearing. So the text tells us that God notices Leah, the unloved sister, right? The one who had to be tricked into finding a spouse, like the unloved sister. God looks down on her in her unloved state and lavishly gives him, gives her grace, gives her love and shows his impartial love to Leah. Despite that she was the unloved one, God still looked down on her and poured out grace by opening up her womb for Jacob. Now, one thing I want to see here is that God didn't open up her womb um, because he loved her more than Rachel. The emphasis here is on the fact that Leah was unloved. And so in his grace, God allowed her to have a child in order to be, to, since she was the unloved one rather than Rachel. So just because Rachel's was barren doesn't mean that she was unloved by God. But God still loves her. But we see in this context what God's doing in the life of Rachel, by, in the life of Leah, excuse me, by loving her impartially time and time again. God is in the business of using the unlikely candidates here for his purpose, for his plan. He did it for Jacob, right? Jacob was the younger one. He shouldn't have been the one that got the promise of God, but God promised before he was born that the older would serve the younger, that Jacob would serve Esau. Yet Jacob went about it wrong, right? He deceived his brother. He deceived his father into receiving this blessing, but God promised it long before that, that he didn't have to do that. So God was using the younger brother rather than the older brother, completely blowing the whole cultural norms. And here God is using the unloved over the loved, right? The one that's, that's been looked over, the one that's not wanted. God is still loving her impartially because he loves her. We see Leah, in fact, will go on to bear seven children. That's not, she goes on after this text, and in total, she bears Jacob six sons and one daughter. So we see seven children, and in the Bible, numbers usually have a meaning, right? We see that the words, the name seven here, the number seven, Jacob had to work seven years extra for Rachel, the one that he really wanted. And we just see here that for every year that he was forced to work, I can just imagine how just much resentment he had in his heart, those second seven years that he had to work for the one that he was supposed to get in the first place. But for each one of those years, God gave him a child from Leah. Right, God's still working in the midst of what's going on here. And in fact, God loves so graciously and impartially that he allowed Leah's children to be two, have two of the most famous and most important children in Scripture. Right, the seven children that Jacob would have with Rachel and Leah and her two maids would come to be the 12 tribes of Israel. And the two most prominent tribes came from Leah. 
the tribe of Judah will be the lineage that Jesus Christ would come from. And then the tribe of Levi, her other, another son of Leah's, would be the tribe of all the priests of Israel, would also be from the lineage of. So we see here the most two important tribes in all of Israel would come from Leah. Just another sign of God loving so impartially and so graciously. God doesn't care who we are and what we've done or the mistakes we've made or how unloved we are by other people. That God's plan is not dependent on that. God's plan is not dependent on our present circumstances. But God's plan and love is dependent on Him. Because He is true and He is loving. And He is not impartial. But He loves graciously. He is impartial. Excuse me. He loves graciously and impartially. And praise God for that. That we are able to be loved by God. Despite what we've done. Despite the mistakes that we've made. So what do we do now in light of God's love? What do we do now in response to God's love. So we'll pick up in the book of 1 John as we pursue this question. In 1 John chapter 4, if you'll turn there, in the book of 1 John, it's really just a love book. Honestly, like, forget Solomon, Solomon, right? Like, 1 John is all about love. In fact, 43 times in the book of 1 John, it's only five chapters long, do we see the word love appear. And 32 of those times is right here between verse chapter 4, verse 7, in chapter 5, verse 3. So in this small snippet, we see 32 times the word love come up. So obviously, the author is trying to tell us something here about love, and specifically God's love. I mean, 1 John is a book filled more love than like a Nicholas Sparks book, right? For you ladies out there. Um, doesn't have as much love as 1 John here. So as we read this, we see an image of how good God is, how much he loves us, and what me and you are to do in light of God's love. So if you will, pick up with me in verse 7 of chapter 4. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. So the author here, 1 John, is telling us that love, true love, is from God. That's where we find what love really is. It's from the creator of the universe that loves us. So does this mean that, like he says in in verse 8, that anyone, excuse me, verse 7, that whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. So does this mean that anybody who shows love is a child of God? That's not what the author is saying here because we know there's people all over the world who are not believers, who are, who are living in their sin, and yet they do show love. They, there's great humanitarian projects out there and companies do great things, but just because they show love does not make them children of God. And I would even argue that many people outside the church love more than the children of God who are called to love others. But yeah, anyone who does not love does not know God. That's, that's kind of a crazy statement that John just throws out here. That anyone who does not love God, in turn, does not know God. Does not love others, does not know God. Because there's this, this correlation, this connection here between how we live horizontally with how we are vertically. Right? If we know God, if we've experienced his love vertically, then we live out his love horizontally. It just comes by nature. He's saying here that a person cannot come into a a relationship with a loving 
God and not be transformed into a loving person. We cannot come into a relationship with a loving and good God and in turn not be transformed into a loving person. Does that mean that you always just be spitting out rainbows and happiness? Like, no, right? Like, we have bad days and we're not just skipping along singing, you know, songs. Uh, not all of us. But we have this joy about us, right? If we're a child of God, if we've experienced his love and his grace on our lives, then how we carry ourselves, how we treat others, it changes. It affects us because we've experienced his love. And that's what he's saying here. We cannot come into a relationship with a loving God and not be transformed into a loving person. Because God is love. To know God is to know love. Right? It's like those t-shirts, if you've ever seen that, it's like Jesus and peace. It's like no Jesus, like N-O, no Jesus, and then N-O peace. Like if you have no Jesus, you have no peace. And there's like a K and a W in like a different color. And it's like, if you know Jesus, then you know peace. Okay, good talk. Uh, same premise here. It's the same premise is here with, with love, right? That to know God is to know love. And if you don't know God, then you do not know what true love is because, as he says at the end of verse 8, God is love. So how is God love? Is God love just love because he says he's love? He's like, I'm love. Okay, bye. Like, no, God is love, not because he just says it, not because the author of 1 John just wrote it. God is love because he has proved it throughout the course of history. He goes on to say in verse 9 how God is love. And this is the love of God. In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. So God proved that he is love through the cross, right, through sending his only son to die so that we may have life. He gave his one and only son. That's how much he's loved. That's how God can say, I'm love, because he's proved it. The proof is here in what he's done. And I want to think back to a few weeks ago in the Gospel Project when we were in Genesis 22 with Abraham and God's commandment to Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, his one and only son, right? The heir to the promise that God had given him. Yet God told Abraham to sacrifice his son. And yet we see they, Abraham went faithfully along the path to the altar and Isaac was faithfully obeying along the way at the very last minute, right? God provided a ram in the thickets to sacrifice instead of Isaac. And you may look at this, and I even look at this to think like, God's kind of crazy, right? Like asking someone to sacrifice their only son. Yet the picture we see here is that God is not willing to ask us to do anything that he has not or is willing to do himself. That we may think it's crazy that he has, he has Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, yet God, the eternal father, gave up his only true son that from eternity to us, to the earth, to die in place of us. That's love, right? That is the picture of love. And why did Jesus come? Why did God send his only son? Not so that we could see a picture of how to live, to see this great moralistic image of Jesus and we can model our lives after him. That's part of following him, right? To become Christ-like. But God did not send his only son so we could see a good picture of how to live, but God sent his son at the end of verse nine so that we might live through him so that we could discover life in Christ. Because apart from him, we are dead in our sins. We have this condition of being enemies of God. And he goes on to say that in verse 10. And this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us. Romans 5a says that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Right? That while we were literally standing on the opposite side as enemies of God, 
We were sinners, and yet Christ still, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross on behalf of us. That's what love is. That's how much God loves us. We didn't love him first. He didn't say, okay, because you love me, I'm going to give you Jesus for that. He says, no, before we ever loved him, he loved us first. And sent his son to give us life and to be the propitiation for our sins. Now, this term propitiation is a big theological term that basically just means that Jesus is the means by which our sins are forgiven. That Jesus is the only way that me and you can be forgiven of our sin, of the things that we've committed against a perfect and holy God. It's not through doing enough things. It's not through cleaning ourselves up and looking a certain way or attending, attending a certain amount of church services. The only way that we're able to have salvation and a relationship with God is because Jesus was the propitiation. Jesus was the only way, the means by which sins are given, the sacrificial lamb. Right, that when John the Baptist saw him walking along the way, he beheld Jesus and said, Behold, the Lamb of God has come to take away the sins of the world. He's the propitiation for us. The only way we can be forgiven. And not because of us. Just like Jacob, his, his plan that God was working in his life was not because of him or anything he's done, but simply because of the love and grace of Jesus and God and what he's done through the cross. That God loved Jacob graciously. He's loving us graciously today. He's given us a lesson on the love of God. And he goes on to say in verse 11, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. So in light of what Christ has done for us in our vertical relationship, in light of that, we also ought to, should, if you've experienced the love of God, you should be transformed by that and show that love to others. That's what the author is saying here and telling us. And then he gives us an incredible reason why in, in verse 12. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. No one's ever seen God in person, right? That God is invisible, but yet, it says when we love others, when we let this love of Christ that is gracious and impartial, but this love, when it compels us to live out our faith, to love others, that actually people around us see an image, see the image of God through us. Through our love for one another, people see God. People may never see the God in flesh, but through us living our faith, they see a picture of God. So think about people in your life that you know that need to see an image of God. Right? Maybe it's a coworker that is so difficult to love, right? Like you literally wish they would get fired tomorrow, right? Because you just don't, I know that, okay, my bad. Uh, that's crucial. But we may have that, or just you just don't want to be beside them, right? Think about it. that person needs Christ, needs to experience the love of God, and through you loving them graciously and impartially like God does us, they're able to see a picture of God. Maybe it's a child. Maybe it's one of our children that is just very difficult to love, and they're so rebellious, and they just will not listen, yet through us loving them, they see a picture of the perfect and holy God that loves them as well. Maybe it's a family member that's hurt us, deceived us, stabbed us in the back, or a friend. And God's calling us as his people who have experienced his love to show that love to those, to them. And that through that, they literally see a picture of the invisible God. That's incredible that God allows that to happen. God uses our actions and our obedience to him to help others discover life in him. And in turn, as we join in what he's doing, we join his redeeming work, people see that image of God. As David spoke of earlier, I believe that, you know, 
God has called us as a church to be here in this community, to be a part of what he's doing in Jackson. He doesn't need us, but he wants us to be a part of what he's doing in Jackson. And so there's an opportunity coming up for literally for us to live this out, to live out the love that God has shown us, that we can live it out to those around us. Because I feel like for so long in the church culture in America, we've just built our buildings or, and we've, ex- we've expected people to come to us, right? Like they see the steeple, they're going to come. They know we're a church. People know they need to be in church. They're going to come, right? But yet so many people don't. That's why Jesus has called us as his people, as his children to go. Right? Jesus didn't say in the Great com- com- uh, Commission to invite them to church and make disciples and baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. But he said, go and make disciples. Right? So I still like to say that one tangible way I do this, I pray that you do this every day in your life. And those people that need to be loved, need to experience the love of Christ. But coming up here at Grace City for the Holly Jolly Block Party that's coming up, we're going to go out we're going to invite our community. We have flyers that you're going to receive today and then on, or you can get them on the day of. December the 1st. So after the pancake breakfast that all of you are going to buy a $5 ticket for, uh, we're going to go out into our community. We're going to meet here at 10 o'clock on December 1st, and we're going to go out in the, in the streets close to the church, and we're going to knock on doors. And this may, some of y'all may be sweating right now. Like this is just completely against everything that you do in your life. But the neat thing is we're going to have an invitation card that's going to say, hey, I'm with Grace City Church, and we love you, and we're for you, and that we have a free, fun, and safe event for your family here at the church, and we would love for you to come. Let's go take down all barriers. Sure, some people may slam the door in your face. That's okay, because some people are going to see, oh, that's that church I pass by every day. Now I have a face, because they're not going to show up here just randomly. Some people may, but, but through us, go and knock on our door and loving you, and I believe that God is going to open up doors through that, through his people being faithful to open up doors to share his hope and his message to these families around us and we can join in his redeeming work and what he's doing in Jackson. So not only that, I want you to be a part of that, but how can God be a part of that and what you're doing in your life, in your, in your jobs, in your schools, in your families, right? And use you as you love people because God has loved us and that we show God's love because we know God's love. We've experienced it.